hospitals collapsed, bodies in the street, people raising their arms to you for help as they desperately gasp with their shattered lungs. Across the road, a gang of hooded ewes are mugging a middle-class person for their last bag of bread flour. Everyone deserves sourdough, they yell as they put the boot in. Is this Britain in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic? This is what many countries believe is going on in the UK at the moment, which was a surprise as I played football in the local park with my children, gazing in wonder at the sheer number of flowers that are out at the moment, thanks to a glorious spring and a two-month lockdown. This is the power of information. So let's try and keep you up to date with what's really going on. It's Friday, the 15th of May. Welcome to the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. Hello once again, everyone. Thanks for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. My name is Neil Tucker, and I'll be taking you through the Hot Topics podcast today. In this podcast, we are going to talk about, unsurprisingly, coronavirus. But I think it is time for us to talk about other things as well. So we are going to have a look at some of the most important research that has been published over the last few weeks, which has gone under the radar because we've all been focusing on one very specific thing. So we are going to cover coronavirus and children. We're going to have a look at the latest research around drugs to treat coronavirus. And then we need to talk about testing. So the government made lots of changes this week to the recommendations around lockdown and going to work. One of the biggest announcements, of course, was about the schools. So the possibility that nursery age children, reception year one and two and six may be going back to school in just two weeks time. And as someone who's been having their children already going to school throughout the whole of this period so that myself and my wife could keep working, I thought that the majority of people would be quite pleased with this recommendation. But it took less than 24 hours for the first petition to arrive on my phone via WhatsApp. And I started to appreciate the continuing level of fear that people have about coronavirus and particularly fear for the safety of their families and hence significant reluctance to send them back to a communal setting. And perhaps this isn't a surprise when you've been fed seven weeks worth of often quite sensationalist headlines in the media. That does instill a lot of fear and anxiety in people and that does not go away overnight. So are they right to be concerned? Well, we don't have a huge amount of data in children. What we do have suggests that children do catch coronavirus, but they tend to have a very mild response to it. And although we have seen a few rare cases of severe disease in young children in the UK, it is very rare. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, we had this alert come out from uh, London hospitals raising concerns. They had been seeing some cases of severe illness in a small number of children. And it wasn't entirely clear what was going on here. They presumed it was linked with coronavirus, but they also suggested there may be another pathogen that could be involved that hasn't, hasn't been identified yet. They described what they were seeing as like toxic shock syndrome and an atypical Kawasaki's. 
Now, in this week's edition of The Lancet, we have a little bit more information on the subject. So this is a report that has come out of Italy and a paediatric department that was comparing the rates and presentations of Kawasaki-like disease in the five years prior to the coronavirus pandemic hitting the, the local area and then what's happened since. The headline figure was reported that there was a 30-fold increase in the rate of severe Kawasaki-like disease since the pandemic has started. But the numbers are still very small. So in this centre, in the five years prior to the pandemic, they had 19 cases. And since the pandemic, they have had 10, eight of whom were positive for coronavirus on serological testing. So there's definitely an increase, but we're talking small numbers here. I think the most important observation was that the nature, the severity of the Kawasaki-like disease was more marked in the coronavirus patients. So they had much higher rates of significant cardiac involvement, higher rates of systemic shock. But thankfully, mortality was zero and all the children had been successfully discharged. A different tack and a very reasonable concern of parents maybe, even though they appreciate the risk to children may be low, they are concerned that the children who may get infected whilst not unwell themselves could then potentially be reservoirs of infection for other members of the family. This is of particular importance in multi-generational households and of particular concern for some ethnic groups such as Asians who we know seem to have a much higher rate of severe disease. A useful opinion piece in the Archives of Disease in Childhood published very recently just goes some way to reassuring us that this is unlikely to be such a problem. So from the data that we've got at the moment, children do not seem to pass on this disease very well. They certainly don't appear to be super spreaders. So, for example, from one Australian study, In an Australian school where there were nine confirmed cases in adults and nine confirmed cases in children, of the other 735 students and 128 staff, none of them contracted COVID-19. It appears from other household studies that SARS-CoV-2 is mainly spread between adults and from adults to children, not from children to adults. So it's definitely true that something is driven in children by coronavirus that makes this Kawasaki-like disease more common. And you cannot say that there is no risk to children from increased social interaction. But we must be mindful, as the WHO has reminded us this week, that we may never eradicate coronavirus. And as I was saying in the last podcast, we can't put too much faith in medications or vaccines coming to the rescue here because, as I'll talk about next, so far no drugs have proved to be effective. So maybe it's time to roll back the rhetoric about danger and the need to stay safe and start changing that to perhaps a more honest conversation with people about accepting that there may be an element of risk here and we need to find some way to deal with that barricading ourselves in our homes for the next few years is not going to be an option. And we should not forget the indirect effects of coronavirus. So in children, schools and nurseries do a fantastic job at trying to help protect children, uh, particularly those in very vulnerable families, in providing them a safe space, in providing them meals. I know that the local school and the local nursery school where my kids go do a fantastic job and make a big difference to the community and to the lives of these children. 
at the moment, much of that is being lost. So their challenge will be to try and uh, make it as safe a space as possible and then encourage families back into school. So I know I talked about this last time as well, but the drugs to treat coronavirus remains, of course, hugely, hugely topical. And I remembered as I saw a New England Journal of Medicine paper, which was a trial of lopinavir-ritonavir combination in adults hospitalised with severe COVID-19, which demonstrated no benefit compared with placebo. I realised that last week I forgot to talk about, of course, the hot thing of the moment, hydroxychloroquine. Then, lo and behold, in the BMJ, they have published two Chinese papers, which are randomised controlled trials on the use of hydroxychloroquine in people with coronavirus. And the first one was about severe patients who had been admitted to hospital needing oxygen. And then the second one was about mild to moderate patients who didn't need the support and who are we, who we are more likely to be seeing in the community. The conclusion from both papers was that hydroxychloroquine failed to improve negative conversion from SARS-CoV-2, by which they mean get rid of the virus from the body and make people better sooner. Then this week, they've also published an observational study in JAMA looking at patients in New York State who had been treated with either hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin or a combination of the two versus people that had had none of these drugs at all. And the authors concluded that there was no statistically significant difference between the four groups in terms of lower mortality in hospital. However, what the authors did notice was that there was an increase in the rate of cardiac arrest, especially in the hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin group. So both of these drugs prolong your QT interval. Throw that into patients who are already markedly unwell and it can be a recipe for disasters. So this supposed wonder combination may actually be more damaging than helpful. One possibility that is raised with all of this research, which tends to be in people with severe coronavirus in the latter stages of the disease, is perhaps we're just missing the boat. Presumably, if you're treating with an antiviral, you need to have that very early on to try and prevent that significant inflammatory response that occurs in that second week, by which point it's more your body than the virus that's causing the problems. So it's still a possibility that they may discover that very early treatment could be beneficial, but I wouldn't hold my breath. The question I've seen circulating over the last couple of weeks is, could BCG vaccination provide some degree of protective effect? So a very recent Lancet editorial discusses why BCG might be helpful, as well as obviously protecting against tuberculosis. It's been found to have benefits in other areas, such as help with preventing other respiratory tract infections. Unfortunately, this glimmer of hope seems to have winked out. This week, JAMA published a paper from Israel where they reviewed 72,000 tests for coronavirus. They looked at several thousand people who had been vaccinated for BCG and a few thousand who had not been vaccinated. And they compared the difference between them for proportion of positive test results and they found no difference. So the authors concluded that this study does not not support the idea that BCG vaccination in childhood has a protective effect against COVID-19 in adulthood. Apart from accepting risk and waiting for natural immunity to develop within our population, is there any other way out of this seen as the drugs don't seem to be helpful? Well, of course, the WHO's recommendation for the last two months has been test, test, 
tests. And I think this has probably been one of the biggest travesties of the UK's response to coronavirus, the snail-like pace at which we ramped up the PCR testing the ability to only test patients being admitted to hospital for such a long period of time and the far too late recognition of the need to test care home staff and residents. The reality is that PTR testing is still not that great, so it's a very specific test with a specificity of around 95%, but it is poorly sensitive with a sensitivity of only around 70. And of course, that's further reduced if you do an oral versus a nasopharyngeal swab, and then further reduced depending on the skill and technique that the tester is using. This, of course, means that it's a good rule in test, so a positive result we can be fairly confident with, but a negative result we certainly can't, which makes me wonder about the rationale for sending health or care workers who have had a single negative swab straight back to work. Part of the problem is a BMJ article this week on interpreting COVID-19 test results points out is that the likelihood of a test being positive or negative is affected by the pre-test probability. So in my mind, I had been extremely scathing about Public Health England rigidly sticking to this idea that people had to have fever or continuous cough to get a test. But the reality is that in individuals who have very minor symptoms, their pre-test probability is going to be low, which means we get an increase in their false negative rate, further eroding the accuracy of the test. Of course, the answer might lie in antibody tests. And this week we had the fantastic news that one has now been assessed by Public Health England for accuracy and accepted for test around the UK. Made by Roach, this is meant to have a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 99.8%. Bottom line is it seems very accurate. What we don't know is when we're going to start getting access to it. Again, I'm somewhat baffled by the delay here. Two weeks ago in the BMJ, they reported on the European Union certifying another antibody test made by Abbott with similar degrees of accuracy, which was available for immediate use. You just wonder why this repetition is necessary and when this is applied to every single stage that we've had at this pandemic, how much overall delay has this resulted in? How many more lives have been lost? Still, currently none of this affects us in general practice because we can't test anything at all and we have our orders. So we are in a holding pattern, trying to manage patients remotely where it's safe to do so, trying to keep coronavirus out of the practice and then trying to help those patients who have other problems. And if you are like my practice, you will have seen an uptick in the number of calls over the last couple of weeks and more and more people are starting to contact us again with routine general practice problems. So I thought now would be a good opportunity just to review some of the most interesting articles that have come out over the last few weeks that have not been anything to do with coronavirus whatsoever, but may be important for our clinical practice. First up, a paper in the BMJ, and this is on sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, so the SGLT2 inhibitors that we have been using quite widely for diabetes management over the last few years. But we're also starting to understand that they seem to have some benefits in other areas as well. So it's already been shown that they have an independent benefit for heart failure, irrespective of whether they have diabetes or not. 
Now, this was a cohort study looking at 30,000 patients from Sweden, Denmark and Norway who had received an SGLT2 inhibitor and then 30,000 people looking at a comparator. So in this case, people having an alternative diabetic treatment, one of the DPP4 inhibitors. They were looking at a composite of renal endpoints, so renal replacement therapy, death from renal causes and hospital admission for renal events. And uh, they found that there was a significant reduction in serious renal events for those on an SGLT2 inhibitor. It was about a 60% reduction, which in absolute terms was a fall from 6.2 per thousand patient years to 2.6 per thousand patient years. So yes, it does seem beneficial. It's hard to get too excited when the numbers who are benefiting seem so small, even if it is statistically significant. But this certainly isn't the end of the story because at the moment in the UK, there is a large randomised control trial which is looking specifically at SGLT2 inhibitors for their renal outcomes. It's going to be a few years before it publishes, but this will give us more definitive data on the relative benefits or otherwise. Next up is a Lancet paper. So this was a systematic review comparing P2Y12 inhibitor monotherapy to aspirin for secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Now, if you're scratching your head and thinking, what the hell is a PY2-12 inhibitor? I have to say I'd looked it up myself and it turns out that it is simply clopidogrel, prosugrel and ticagrelor. I think this is a useful question to answer. If these simple drugs could provide some benefit over aspirin, then that would be welcome. And indeed, it showed that they probably do. But the numbers needed to treat in this study was 244. And in their conclusion, the authors question whether this is of important clinical relevance. So for now, Let's stick with aspirin, but let's not forget the benefits of lifestyle changes. So we know that if you are overweight, then losing weight improves a range of cardiometabolic markers, but encouraging people to lose weight is a challenge. This next paper has just been published in the BJGP. And this was an observational study looking at the effectiveness of a brief intervention from the GP in encouraging patients to engage with a paid for weight loss service. So we know people will attend weight loss services when they're funded by the NHS. But when people have to pay for something, their enthusiasm seems to quickly drop off. I've had a patient before ask me if I can prescribe them the Cambridge weight loss plan. And they looked terribly shocked when I had to apologise and said that I couldn't, although they might want to consider that the cost of the plan was probably less than the money they'd be saving on food each week. So the study found that a GP referral for them to a paid for weight loss programme was acceptable and about half of them accepted that referral. But unfortunately, only one in 50 people actually showed up, which was 2% of the study population, which was much, much lower than around the 40% of people who would typically have attended a NHS funded weight loss programme. It seems that people struggle to see the value in something that they have to pay for, even if it's good for them. But it also makes me wonder of the potential benefit of getting these kind of programs more embedded in our general practices. We might actually start seeing much higher levels of engagement. 
Encouraging lifestyle medicine may turn out to be the theme of today because the final paper is a BMJ study. This is a meta-analysis looking at the progression rates of type 2 diabetes in women with gestational diabetes compared with healthy controls. And it's a huge study. Over a million individuals were included. And the conclusion was that there is a nearly tenfold higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes if you've had gestational diabetes than someone who's had a normoglycemic pregnancy. Of course, this highlights the importance of carefully following up this group. And we already have the recommendation that these women should be followed up with an annual HbA1c. But as the paper concludes, this magnitude of risk highlights the importance of intervening to prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes, particularly in the early years after pregnancy. And we now have good data that people can achieve diabetes remission through lifestyle measures. We know that people with pre-diabetes can improve that rate of progression by exercise and weight loss. And given that the rate of progression appears to be just as high for someone with gestational diabetes as it is in someone with pre-diabetes, we should be doing our best to try and get them engaged in a process that's going to hopefully provide them big benefits in the long run. So normally I'd finish with future medicine, but given the fact that it feels like we're already living in future medicine, I thought today I might finish with another poem. As you may remember, one of the GPs in my practice, Andrew Schumann, who is a very big poetry fan, brings us in a selection each week. And this was this week. So this is from Brian Bilston, and this is called Kindness. To recap what we know, it did not begin in a laboratory in Wuhan, nor with a pangolin or bat, but it already lay dormant within us like a seed in need of certain conditions to grow. Its symptoms are many and various. It may include some or all of the following teardrops, sudden laughter, a feeling of warmth and a peculiar uplifting of the heart. It leaves its traces everywhere from boxes left on doorsteps to conversations over fences. It can be transmitted over vast distances through a phone call or or from a smile across a street or a certain softness of tone spoken beside a hospital bed. It affects young and old equally. There is no race or gender immune from it. It has the power to topple bad governments. If one person were to pass it on to just three others and they in turn were to pass it on to three more, in no time at all, the world would be full of it. And where might we ask ourselves, would we be then? So thanks for joining us once again. Do keep an eye out on the mbmedical.com website. So after the recent success of our live streamed online hot topics course a few weeks ago, we are going to be doing an urgent care course in the same vein on the 20th of June and another live hot topics course on the 27th, the week after. As ever, if you want to get hold of us, you can email hottopics at nbmedical.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, so at GP Hot Topics. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with everything that we need to know to stay up to date with general practice. Look after yourself. Bye bye.